Living Stones is a weekly conversation about living a truly Catholic life. Deacon Harold Burke Sivers and Ken Hellenius help you deepen your relationship with Christ and His Church, discussing practical ways to grow in faith, participate more fully in the liturgy, and practice charity towards all. Hello and welcome to Living Stones. I'm your co-host, Ken Hellenius, sitting in my home studios in South Bend, Indiana, and sitting across from me in his home studio in Portland, Oregon, is the producer's original choice to play Captain Merrill Steubing on The Love Boat. His name is Deacon Harold Burke Sivers. Hello, Deacon. <laughs> hey, Ken, how you doing? <laughs> the Love Boat, man. <laughs> oh, man, bring back some... I mean, what was, what was it? It was uh, The Love Boat and then Fantasy Island. Correct. Back to back. Back to back. Yeah. We're kids, yeah. There's that one episode of Fantasy Island that was terrifying, that involved like a cave and some time travel or something like that. And I remember the love boat was, you know, happy go lucky. I mean, I had no clue what was going on about affairs and all those sorts of things, you know, because I was a little <laughs> kid, right? But then Fantasy Island, you know, it was, it always had danger and intrigue. And then there was a terrifying episode that, that every now and then I try to think, gosh, I'd like to search that out and see if I could find it. But then I realize it terrified me as a kid. Why would I want to watch it now? You know, <laughs> so true. Huh? By the way, a little known fact about the love boat is that in the early seasons, Doc was quite the ladies' man. And of course, you look at him now and you're like, Coke bottle glasses, you know, not not a traditionally handsome guy, but he was he was the ladies' man on the show. And it was a different time in the late seventies. Let's just say a yep. totally different time. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, it was like, yeah, Julie and Isaac, right? The bartender, Isaac, the bartender who always yeah. was doing the finger guns. Oh yeah. 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 <laughs> I would have loved, I would have loved to have seen a show with Deacon Harold Burke Sivers as uh, captain Steubing. Oh my goodness. <laughs> that would have been hilarious. Well, I do have the bald head now too. Though, you got so. the bald head. Uh, how are you at operating, uh, nautical charts not very good i need to refresh her i think okay <laughs> <laughs> well then maybe it's better that gavin mcleod was the captain yeah yeah <laughs> probably that's good well you know one thing that's interesting with me so <laughs> i was invited to be a uh, part of a movie that's coming out uh later this year about eucharistic miracles Wow. So, like, awesome. so I was contacted like, you know, because people I get asked to be part of projects quite often. And I so I said, okay, what is this? Who who is this person? Blah, blah, blah. And so when I saw the list of people that they interviewed, you know, Father Donald Countaway, um, Cardinal Lorenze, uh, Blessed Carlo Acutis's mom. Wow. Italy, um, Lila Rose, Bishop Strickland. And I was like, wow. And so uh, they were gonna they were going out to Steubenville to film Scott Hahn as part of this movie. And they said, Hey, can you come out to Steubenville and, you know, we'll fly you out to Steubenville and you can, you know, shoot, you know, being got a couple scenes of this movie. I'm like, okay, cool. So they sent me a script. I had to memorize lines, man. Yeah. I never had to do that before. <laughs> Even with, with, with the power of my hands, the rosary movie, I, there was no script. I mean, they just interviewed me and, you know, follow me around for a day and film me watching my daughter's soccer game, that kind of thing, which our family praying to Rosie, which all made it into the movie. But there was no script. I actually had to memorize lines and, you know, <laughs> it was, it was a, and then we got on the set, you know, and it, it's OK. We're going to film from five to eight and it end up 
they said, well, then they, they called me and said, we're going to run an hour late. We're still doing with, with Dr. Han. We're running an hour late. You know, come at six and we'll be, we'll be done by we'll be done like by nine or ten. I walked off the set at twelve forty five a.m. Oh, my God. <laughs> wow. It's just as I just have a whole appreciation for movies now, you know, like setting up the lights and blocking and making sure the camera angles because we had to shoot the scene. Then we had to shoot the scene again from a different angle. Right. Then we had to shoot the scene again. I was like, holy cow, man, how many times we got to do this? But. But it all come together. But the interesting thing is a guy who's the main guy behind, well, two main guys behind this, but one of them is a guy named Angelo Labuti, who has a very, very heavy Italian accent. I mean, he's like off the boat Italian. But um, when he showed me, I said, well, I said, have you been involved in movies long? And he showed me his like portfolio on, on, on his website. He's, I mean, he's done the Marvel Avengers. He's wow. been involved with... Um, uh, Lion King and and all all kinds of a uh, ton of Disney movies, you know. Um, I was like, holy cow, man! This guy's like the real deal, Good and shit. he's super Catholic, you know. Um, so this is kind of a side project for him. In fact, he um, he lives in Hollywood, and okay. uh, you know, like I said, he's heavily into the uh, Marvel and Disney world, and he showed me like a stuff he did for a bunch of movies. Like, man, this guy's like the real deal. So it was very exciting be part of that so any idea when that's due to come out well they're looking at doing on the feast of our lady of guadalupe so december 12th but but we'll see they need a little more financing to do they want to do some live action scenes sure. um so that's going to take a little more money for them to do so um if they can't do it by december it'll be sometime early next year awesome yeah. Well, that's really cool. And, uh, you know, just remember us when you make it big. Okay. No, no, remember no. Guys, remember yeah. your friends at Living Stones. Remember Modern Day Radio. Remember yeah. all of our affiliates, all of our friends in well, the cross America. I'm not going anywhere. And I'm sure, as <laughs> often happens, a lot of my scenes will end up on the cutting room floor. So, so we'll see what actually makes it into the movie. They're in the extended edition, which will be uh, released, you know, like Lord of the Rings. There's a. <laughs> theatrical cut and then there's the 46 hour dvd so it'll be awesome <laughs> well deacon we have been um discussing uh this wonderful encyclical by pope john paul ii from 1995 called evangelium vitae the gospel of life and last week we began discussing the section which is about the relationship between the civil law and the moral law. And so we're picking up our conversation. We, we started talking about paragraph 70 uh, last week, and um, there's so much important stuff in here. We're going to continue from paragraph 70. Um, because last week, we, as we ended, we were talking about ethical relativism and how the, the tyranny of relativism really is essentially what it is and how we talked a little bit about cancel culture and, and um, kind of the idea that the majority allows silencing of any minority voices. And particularly, Pope John Paul II, in, in, when he wrote this in 1995, was concerned about the, the fact that, you know, there was already a growing, obviously, you know, democratic societies had pretty much enshrined at that time uh, abortion and they were beginning to uh, get into euthanasia, which are now very widespread. I mean, certainly abortion remains widespread 
uh, and euthanasia has expanded tremendously uh, throughout the United States. Um, you know, it's in uh, a number of jurisdictions, began in Oregon, and now is is in, um, I, I can't remember the exact number now, it's 10 or 12 states and the District of Columbia all have um, euthanasia. Uh, and when I say euthanasia, I mean physician-assisted suicide uh, laws on the books. And so, um, so John Paul was really worried about that and particularly the relationship between the laws that we pass in democracies and the moral law that is written on all of our hearts and the relationship between those two. And in this paragraph 70, um, he, he draws an excellent analogy and an excellent analysis. He says, everyone's conscience rightly rejects those crimes against humanity of which our century has had such sad experience. Talking about the 20th century, of course, but it continues today. But would these crimes cease to be crimes if, instead of being committed by unscrupulous tyrants, they were legitimated by popular consensus? Democracy, he goes on, cannot be idolized to the point of making it a substitute for morality or a panacea for immorality. Fundamentally, here's the money quote, democracy is a system and as such, it is a means and not an end. I think this is an amazing insight and, and really something that we need to, we need to share and we need to reflect on and we need to make part of our regular conversation with with, you know, everywhere where we where we are in the public square. No, absolutely, and um, you know, and we and it's important to have these kinds of discussions as we talked about last time that are not happening right now because people are talking past each other. Because ultimately, what this should be about is a search for truth. Um, you know, we we always have to look at what's best for the other person and not for myself. And that's what politicians are supposed to do. You know, people are, that are in elected offices, um, even priests, I mean, you, you, even husbands and fathers, I mean, you always look at what's best for the other person, not for myself, you know? And when, when we're talking about a democratic system and we're looking at things like euthanasia and issues through that lens, again, it's beautiful what the Holy Father said, it's it's a means, not an end. Because what is the what is the ultimate end, right? The uh, life with God forever, union with God, objective truth, you know, things that are true in and of themselves and not true because I want them to be true, or because I have an agenda behind my subjective truth, you know. Because when that happens, then we then um, people get overlooked. You know, people be yep. get get marginalized. And so the very things that you're supposed to be advocating for, you're actually helping to promote. You know, and I, and I think that's dangerous. Yeah. I mean, as as he goes on to point out, the moral value of democracy is not is not a given. It's not automatic. Um, it really does depend on the ends which we are pursuing as a community. It's those ends that define then the steps that we take. Earlier here in this in this encyclical, John Paul has said that you can never use an immoral means to achieve a good end. And what he's saying here in relation to democracy and the way we govern ourselves is an expression of that exact same concept. If the ends that we are pursuing are themselves 
immoral, then no, you know, none of the steps that we take along the way are going to themselves be moral either. But if we are pursuing, as you say, said there so excellently, Deacon, if we are pursuing an end that is towards God, towards justice, towards peace, reconciliation, and the true common good, then the means that we choose along that path each need to be in accordance with that as well. And as he says, the val- it's the values that we pursue as a society. Those values are what drives each and every one of our decisions. And those values cannot be just based on what the majority wants right now, but they have to be in accordance with the objective moral law, that natural law written in the human heart. As he says, this is the obligatory point of reference for civil law itself. Yeah, exactly. And as I had mentioned last time, I was talking about the different types of law. It's the civil law or the positive or human law that flows from the natural moral law. And the problem is when you when you sever that connection, um, when you obfuscate that relationship, then we see some of the confusion, the chaos that we're seeing now. And so instead of bringing people together and building up people, uh, you're actually, uh, like I said, marginalizing people and putting people to the side because your agenda takes uh, precedence over the objective needs of, of all of humanity. And, um, and sadly, that's, that's where we are. And, and, but what's the goal? See, what's the goal? See, for us as believers in Jesus, the goal in, in, in giving ourselves away um, so that we could truly find ourselves ultimately leading to our ultimate end, which is life with God. Uh, but what is, what is the end of people with this subjective truth? What is their end? Their end is only for themselves. I want to get reelected again. You know, I, I want to make sure that that it's all about me. It's the trinity of me, worshiping the trinity of me, myself, and I. You know, um, but but there's a veneer of this is what's best for everyone. But taking the life of an innocent person is never okay. Killing yourself uh, with assisted suicide is never okay. Uh, a doctor euthanizing you because they don't think that your life has value anymore. That's not okay. You know, but 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 unless we, that's why I'm so it's so important that we're talking about this because even though this was written back in '95, it is just as poignant and relevant in in our discussions and conversations today. And this is why the man is a saint. So so it, it's good for us to go back and look at this and see how this thought of, of St. John Paul II is being carried forward to the 21st century in our time today. And it's clearly shown we still have work to do. Yeah. You know, and he's quite prophetic in this here at the end of paragraph 70. He says, some might think that even this function in the absence of anything better should be valued for the sake of peace in society. While one acknowledges some element of truth in this point of view, it's easy to see that without an objective moral grounding, not even democracy is capable of ensuring a stable peace, especially since peace, which is not built upon the values of the dignity of every individual and of solidarity between all people, frequently proves to be illusory. Think about it. This, especially the riots that we experienced in this past year, which were questions of human dignity, 
but they were not, uh, but I mean, they were questions of human dignity that showed that we can't even achieve peace as a, as a community when we don't truly respect one another and, and have the idea of solidarity at its core. The, the riots and the civil unrest, of course, seen quite, quite a bit there in Portland, but all across the United States, um, these are questions that are driven by a lack of a common understanding of what freedom is and what it means to be, uh, to, to work for equality and justice. Um, and interestingly enough, I'm reminded as I read this of, you know, books that have been kind of published in the last few years that talk about these issues, these issues of, uh, that are kind of rearing their heads in civil unrest and, and kind of a, a, a fractured society are honestly at the core of the entire liberal democratic project. Because when we say that, that the entire basis of our culture is to maximize freedom, but that's a specific idea of freedom that is incompatible with true understanding of the human person. And the anthropology at the core is not freedom from, but it's freedom to do freedom to be the best that we can be. And that's what John Paul is talking about too, is we indeed value freedom, but it's freedom from that which constrains us like addiction and from, you know, activities that are not in accordance with human fulfillment. Um, and I think of flourishing, human flourishing is really the word I want there. Um, and so at the core, we're, we're continuing to deal with the, you know, I think of a book like by Patrick Deneen, Professor Patrick Deneen at Notre Dame, Why Liberalism Failed, you know, um, and it's at its core, it's because the idea of liberty is different in the secular liberal project than it is at, than what true freedom in Christ is. No, exactly right. And um, John Paul II ends that his thought here in, in paragraph 70. So the regulation of interests, it goes, even in a participatory systems of government, so like democracy, the regulation of interests often occurs to the advantage of the most powerful, yep. since they're the ones most capable of maneuvering not only the levers of power, but also the shaping, the formation of consensus. Yep. Very interesting. And so we, we have a movement in our country that seems to be wanting to move away from things like capitalism or from this democratic system. And, and a lot of people are talking about we're moving toward more a, a socialist way of government where there is no which which actually takes away freedom and consensus. I mean, look what's happening in China. <laughs> people can't even worship freely their religion in China, which is one of the basic tenets of democracy in our country today. But they can't worship freely. In fact, they're taking down pictures of Jesus and crucifix of putting up the uh, prime minister of, of China. The yeah. premier, this is his picture. They're, they're retranslating the Bible to put communist socialist rhetoric in it and taking out the teachings of Jesus. They're, they're, they're making their own Bible. You see? I'm, so I'm so reminded of, of Anglicanism, to be honest, of what Henry the eighth in England did in the, in the 16th century. I mean, it's the same sort of thing, right? The government 
is in charge of the faith. And, you know, they've negotiated new accords with the Vatican so that the official Catholic Church, you know, will be all their bishops have to be approved by the church, by the state, rather than appointed freely by the church in China. You know, it's very similar to what took place in the in the Anglican, you know, Reformation or revolution, really, uh, in uh, under Henry VIII. Yeah, that's that's a good good uh, parallel there. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, so e- even though again this was written, you know, in '95, so some very important concepts here that we need. To, I think we need to to ponder uh, deeply and seriously as we continue to move forward uh, as a country and as a church uh, and as individuals who find our ultimate freedom in Christ. Yeah. Right. And so we have to make, we, we, we can't be silent about these kinds of things. We need to, we need to speak up and make our, make our voices heard and not just let the liberal majority run roughshod over us. You know, we need, we need to have a voice in that public square. Um, And that takes courage. You know, we, yep. we, 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 and we, we, and the, but the, ultimately we have the truth on our side, right? We, and, and because the fullness of that truth is, the fullness of that revelation is Jesus Christ, which is not a concept, but a person. And it goes back to what, <laughs> to the very beginning of this uh, section, we have to uh, obey God rather than men. And this is what he goes on to, to talk about here in paragraph 71. We have to recover the relationship between the civil and the moral law. The civil law, as he says, must guarantee an ordered social coexistence and justice. And that begins with the right to life. This is the absolute fundamental right, because without life, none of the rest of it even matters, right? If we don't protect the the right to life of each and every individual human person, then we don't have a, even a basis to stand. You know, we read so often, you, you know, the, the declining birth rates. And those are direct result of, of, in some ways, affluence. Because the, you know, you look at the abortion rate of, and it's, yes, it's very high among, among uh, those who are in poverty. But as far as family sizes and choices that are made of like um, uh, unplanned pregnancies, the abortion rate is actually much higher among affluent people. I read that recently in a, in a piece that was done uh, by our friends over at the pillar, uh, the pillar Catholic uh, with JD Flynn and Ed Condon, uh, kind of some analysis of those numbers. Um, what we are talking about is truly questions of life that are being, uh, they're being, supplanted by a desire for comfort instead of a desire for the joy and yes the challenges that that children bring and that families bring right and i say that as somebody who doesn't have children you know unfortunately but i you know we need families otherwise the human race dies out that's just simply the way it is you know but john paul goes on to say that Um, Any government which doesn't guarantee human rights fails to actually have any binding force. Uh, And really, if you think about it, force is the operative word here. Because a government which imposes its own will can only do so through force. You know, Mm. if you think about what the United States was founded because of, it was because we were the the settlers, the, the American revolutionaries felt that they were being oppressed by a government, 
you know, and then they passed the Bill of Rights that guaranteed certain rights so that the citizens could protect themselves from a tyrannical government as well. You know, there we have this, but the reality is America, as I mentioned before, is not itself, therefore, the perfect country either. You know, we we have to struggle among ourselves to pursue the right ends, to pursue ends that are in accordance with the natural moral law. And this paragraph here, 71, and then going on to 72, I mean, it talks about this positive human law that only binds in as much as it conforms to God's eternal law. And as he says, in the worst cases, it, quote, ceases to be a law and becomes instead an act of violence. And that's quoting St. Thomas Aquinas there. Mm. Uh, and then he says, consequently, a civil law authorizing abortion or euthanasia ceases by that very fact to be a true morally binding civil law. So I mean, we're moving quickly here, but that's because what he's doing is he's taking these principles of the relationship between the civil law and the moral law and now applying them to actual policy decisions that we in this democracy are collectively responsible for, but collectively have the responsibility to change, to conform with God's moral law in order that our laws may be good and true and right and conducive to peace, justice, and to human flourishing. Yeah, and if you look at the other end of the spectrum, um, in China, you know, first they had the one-child policy, right? then a two-child policy. Now they just have, they just implemented a three-child policy. Seriously, because and, and, well, where's all where's all the overpopulation problem? Where's all this stuff that they were talking people are talking about before? It's a panacea. It's 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 not real, right? You see, so I think what John Paul II here is striving for a balance. So you have one end of the spectrum that you were talking about, uh, people not having children because of comfort, and then you have the government regulating, telling people how many children you can have or can't have on the other end. And what we have to do is find that that middle where it's the common good, what's good what good and true and beautiful and best for everyone in society that allows for that human flourishing that you talked about so beautifully. Well, this is a, a conversation that's going to have to pick up next week, Deacon, because again, we've, uh, we've run out of time, but it's such quality content that we invite you to connect with us on our Facebook page, that's at Living Stones Media on Facebook, and continue the conversation there. Come and join us again next week here on the program, but you can also download all the previous episodes of the show to catch up or, uh, you know, or cats up, as I like to say, catch up, um, at, uh, at materdeiradio.com. But Deacon, until we gather next week, might we have a blessing? Sure. May Almighty God bless you and keep you the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. We'll see you next week here on Living Stones. You've been listening to Living Stones with Ken Hellenius and Deacon Harold Burke Sivers. Living Stones is produced at the studios of Modern Day Radio in Portland, Oregon. For more information about this show, go to moderndayradio.com. That's M-A-T-E-R-D-E-I radio.com.